0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, I encourage you to turn with me please in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Galatians. We're going to be at Galatians chapter two in just a little while, but I want you to be ready when we get there. We're going to cover some ground before coming to the text but first, I've got to tell you about this guy. This guy was walking along a country road and then and he saw this other guy on this, this bridge overlooking a high, high drop to the river below and the guy on the bridge looked as if he was about to jump. So our guy walking along says, whoa, 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 hey, whoa. Hang on, buddy, wait, hang on. Um, and trying to find something in common with him. Listen, listen, do you, do, you, do you believe in God? The guy said yes, I do. He goes, I do too. Good. Okay, so um, are you, what's your religion? Are you, you, know, are you Christian or, or Jewish or Muslim? What, what, what's your, he said I'm Christian. Me too, okay. Well so like are you Protestant or Catholic or Greek Orthodox? He said Protestant. Well, me too. I'm, I'm Protestant too. Well, what, what kind of Protestant are you? I mean, are you Lutheran, Episcopalian, Methodist? I mean, are you are you Baptist? He said, I'm, I'm Baptist. <laughs> me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? <laughs> he said, Northern Baptist. He goes, <laughs> me too. Are you Northern Baptist Great Lakes region or... Northern Baptist, Mid-Atlantic region. He said, North Atlantic, Great Lakes region. He said, me too. Are you North Northern Baptist, Great Lakes region confession of 1872 or Northern Baptist, Great Lakes region confession of 1924? He said, I'm, I'm Northern Baptist, Great Lakes region confession of Eighteen. 18- 72, the guy said, hmm. die, heretic, and kicked him off the bridge. <laughs> if you'll stand for the benediction, we'll be just... To... <laughs> Strange where we sometimes draw the boundary lines. You know, with God, however, we're told in the Psalms, that the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. It's natural for us as human beings to draw boundary lines. It's kind of natural to us. It's kind of what we do. These are my people. Those are not my people. This is my tribe. That's not my tribe. This is who is in and this is who is out. We kind of do that kind of naturally. I mean, even in the first century, within Judaism itself, there were those who were, divided between one another just like we can be as well. The trouble is, this is what got Jesus in so much trouble. This is what got Jesus a bad reputation because he kept erasing the boundary lines around whatever table it was that he was sitting at. Even in his first century context, even within his own religion, Judaism, Sadducees didn't want to eat with Pharisees and Pharisees didn't want to eat with Essenes and Essenes didn't want to eat with anybody. But he kept erasing the boundaries and welcoming people to the table whose lives actually symbolized everything that was allegedly unholy, unclean, unwelcome at a table of the righteous. Jesus did that all the time and on purpose because Jesus knew that the the table symbolized everything. The table was a symbol for what is coming because he believed deeply what those who came before him believed, that there is coming at the end of the age a great table. A great messianic banqueting feast where all of the broken and all of the scattered in this world are welcomed to be gathered together and mended, healed, loved, reconciled, put back to a state of wholeness. And what I've been trying to preach these last six weeks has been The degree to which you and I make space at the table of our hearts for one another is the degree to which that kingdom begins to break in to our everyday normal lives right now. Yeah, yeah. So that message could not be more urgent than today. Because I can promise you this, I guarantee you, there is somebody here today and you've gathered here and you almost didn't come. <laughs> and you know you're having a hard time welcoming somebody to your table. God has put somebody in your life or maybe a multiplicity of somebodies in your life and you just can't get over whatever the chasm is that separates you and you're struggling a bit. And I'm here to tell you that whatever it is, the thing, And you know the thing. It's the thing that makes the room thick with anxiety at Thanksgiving. You know the thing. It's not new to you or to us. It's been around a while. And scripture says something about what to do about it. So there's this story in the New Testament. The story between two of the greatest leaders of the church who locked horns with each other. They got they got in the dust-up over a very serious matter, and we're talking about Peter and Paul. You know Peter. Water walking Peter, ear chopping Peter. Confess him. He's the, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God, that Peter, the three-time denying Peter, the restored Peter, the leader of the church, Peter, and Paul. They used to be called Saul, Paul. The one who met the risen Christ on the road and was blinded and woke to a new way of seeing, Paul. Who was called to preach to all non-Jews in the world, Paul. The one who wrote half of our New Testament, Paul. And at the center of their conflict with each other is this question of who is welcome at the table. So I wonder if in just the time that remains, I might be able to talk to you for a moment about how big is your table. First, a little background. You know this whole thing began as a movement within Judaism, right? By thing, I mean this whole thing. This, this whole movement of following Jesus began not as a brand new religion, you know, Jesus was not a Christian, you know that, right? Jesus did not pray the Roman road and become a Christian and then he was a Jew. And those who followed him first were Jewish, who were so overwhelmed by the compelling nature of his presence and then the overwhelming, transformational truth of his resurrection that they could not live their lives ordered any other way. But they were all Jewish and they had been waiting for his arrival for a long time. For centuries, there was a a kind of generational readiness, a practice, a rehearsal. They took on particular kinds of behaviors that readied the heart and the mind and the body for the day when the king who came would set up the kingdom. We hear a little bit of it, like hinted at, in the first chapter of Hebrews. We hear these words, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he has also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. They had been longing for his arrival for so long that there was a kind of ordered way by which they lived their lives. They, they were in a covenant arrangement where they agreed to live by a certain calendar rhythm. Here is when you work and here is when you rest. Here is when you have the springtime festival and here is the falltime festival and here are the high holy days and here are the things you do in between. They lived by a holy calendar. They lived by a holy diet. They lived by dietary restrictions. Here's some things that you can eat and here's some things that you can't eat. And they lived with bodily marks on their their personal frame we call circumcision, which was the quintessential expression of the people of Israel. Male circumcision who would then show physically to the world who they belong to. All of these were identity markers. I live by this calendar, I live by this diet. I welcome the mark of circumcision on my body as a way to say I belong to the group of people waiting for this particular kingdom to arrive. So when he arrived, and said, hey, this kingdom's breaking in all around you. Of course they were filled with giddiness and a sense of joy, but they could not possibly fathom the breadth, the length, the depth, the height of the grace by which they met him. The grace that slips out beyond their control. The grace that is beyond all the categories of their their vocabulary to define. So they see God's spirit pouring out over all people and at first these Jewish Christians, all ethnically Jewish, celebrate the pouring out of God's spirit. We read a little bit of it like in uh, the second chapter of Acts at a Jewish festival called Pentecost. We hear in the last days it will be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all flesh. see and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I, and I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day, and then this line. Then everyone, everyone, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they took it so seriously. And they called upon his name. And not just the ethnic Jews, but their neighbors who were non-Jewish or Greek-speaking or Gentile is the catch-all phrase. And they began to call upon the name of the Lord too, to the degree that the growth of the church among the non-Jewish Christians was beginning to rival the number of those in among the Jewish Christians the very first ones who had been waiting for generations and ultimately as it began to grow beyond control a serious question was raised all oh, these cats came late to the game I mean, none of them had any of the history of preparedness, none of the generational readiness, none of them have any kind of behavioral ordering by which they live by a calendar, they don't live by dietary restrictions, all these non-Jewish believers. They don't live with circumcision as a sign of their readiness. So, clearly, something's gonna have to be done about that. And there were those who made a very strong argument Well, then clearly, the logical thing for us to do is if you come to this faith in Jesus, but you haven't come through by way of generations of preparedness in the Jewish faith, well, you first have to kind of become a Jew, for you can't skip lines. You can't cut to the front of the line. We had to wait. It's almost like how I feel about seminaries these days. I had to take all Hebrew and all Greek and can you believe sometimes you can graduate. I know two of our interns are in the house. You are so lucky. Sometimes I'm just bitter. You should take all kinds of languages and you know why, because we did. Even if you don't go into a ministry context where you need it, well we did, so you should. Now you're beginning to feel the sense of, oh, this generational readiness, this history of preparedness, and now these Johnny and Jane come lately's can come to the faith in Christ and not be circumcised and not abide by dietary restrictions and not keep the calendar, are you crazy? And there is the dilemma at the heart of it. What is really required to sit at the Lord's table? In other words, who belongs and here is the first serious controversy in the lord 's church. who belongs at the t- what does it take for me to get a seat at that table because some of us earned it, some of us worked for it, some of us have the the background, the cred, some of us put in the time, and now you come along and You've not done a thing to prove you were waiting. You've not done a thing to, and there's the crisis. Let's start with Peter. Peter was among the most traditional. He was a Jew of all Jews, and he, pract- he was circumcised. He practiced the dietary restrictions. You know Peter, right? And yet, something happened. You know what he did? He ate with some Gentile Christians and changed his mind It's funny how issues tend to change when the issues have faces. He eats with these Gentile Christians and realizes, whoa, whoa, hang on. I see the spirit in them the same way that the spirit is in me. And it causes a crisis of faith for him. Ultimately, he has this vision in which God sends a blanket of clean and unclean animals down and he says to Peter, basically, look, All the things that you thought were unclean are no longer unclean. All the things you thought were unholy are not unholy. I've made all things holy and clean and acceptable. And he has a change of heart, but it happens only after he has a meal with some Gentiles. The power of breaking bread with someone not like you is transformational. It's transformational. You know, you you and I can wax eloquently on race. And until you begin to invest in true relationships with people of a race other than your own, then you realize, maybe there's some things I didn't know. You and I can wax eloquently on sexuality until it's not an issue, but it's your nephew. It's not an issue, but it's your son or daughter. We can wax eloquently on any kind of topic, climate, we whatever, until... It has a face, right? When I was an intern shortly after college, right before going to seminary, I had to make some money to go to seminary, see? So during the summer after graduation, I worked at a church in Flintstone, Georgia. I worked nine hours a day in a factory, a bleachery, where I, I made bundles of scrap cloth and took them to the trash for nine hours a day. And then at night, I was a youth pastor intern. And as I was working in this church, Flintstone Baptist Church in Flintstone, Georgia, we were a modern Stone Age congregation. (laughs) The guy who hired me was old school, tough guy, conservative, hired me, and one day, and we spent the summer loving people and leading people to Christ. And one day, in an associational pastors meeting, He walks by this table of other pastors, and they're talking about, yeah, we got a local kid who's going to that liberal seminary. He walks in between them with his big finger, thick mustache, think tombstone. (laughs) He interrupts him and says, Yep. And he's my summer intern and walks away. Now was he liberal? No, he was as conservative as they. But now the issue had a face. And when the issue has a face, hang on a minute, now you're talking about my family, right? Peter broke bread with people previously who were simply an issue. But now they were real people and the spirit was in them and I was reminded of this as I think about Peter breaking bread and seeing in them the same spirit that was in him, I'm reminded of the wisdom of Henry Nouwen, when the Christ in me sees the Christ in you, then the ground between us is holy ground, yeah. So it looked like everything was set, for the launch of the church to have a big old wide table where everybody can come in their imperfection and in their unfinished business to come to the table and be perfected and be transformed it looked like it was set until peter God, until Peter goes to Antioch and he visits paul who 's preaching to the gentiles who 's setting big old wide tables everywhere. And he goes up there and their lives are being transformed and husbands stop beating their wives and business leaders start dealing honestly and communities are being transformed because these Gentiles are coming to Jesus. And in the midst of it, a group of people slip up there from Jerusalem called the Judaizers. It was a group of people who believed you can't cut to the front of the line you have to become a Jew first before you can be a part of this movement in the way of Jesus. And so they were convincing these brand new Christians who were finding freedom in Christ, life in Christ, redemption in Christ. They were convincing them, you have to be circumcised first. And they were like, well, I didn't have that on my calendar this week, but if I have to do that to follow Jesus, I guess I will. And they were causing a great problem. And yet, Paul had a big problem with them. And Peter did too, theoretically, until they show up. Well, I I went to Sunday school with them. We grew up in the same town. We went to the same elementary school, these Judaizers. I know them by name. And Paul sees Peter start, starts to peter out, starts to waffle. And Peter then begins, well, you know, it may not be a bad idea to keep a good diet, maybe we should, you know, circumcision and that, but I mean, we should, maybe we should, and he begins to waffle and Paul says, are you out of your mind? Have you ever, you ever been at a place in your own spiritual theological growth where you're at the edge of something glorious and you're, you're growing and expanding and you're at a place where God is showing you something you've never seen before and your faith is deepening and it's lengthening and you're, and you're like, wow, this is fantastic. You turn around to share this with those who came up with you and they're not where you are. Does it ever feel like you have betrayed them? It can. They're the ones who handed me this tradition. And if I'm saying I no longer need that part of it, nor this part, but it's bigger than that, it feels as if I'm somehow being untrue to you. You know, Laura and I have lived in a lot of places. We we, we got married in Tennessee, we we moved to Virginia, we've lived in Maryland, we moved back to Tennessee, down to Florida, and we've been here for a while. And do you know that every time we go home to her parents, it takes all of 10 seconds for her accent to return. (laughs) It's the most uncanny thing I've ever seen. All of a sudden, it's Christmas (laughs) time. Time to put up the bright white lights, you know. It's uncanny because when you're with your people who got you this far, something changes and it's not just about accent. Sometimes it's theological, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's ideological. One year, I was an intern at another church in Marietta. I was a college student. I was a junior. And I was working for the youth pastor there who was my youth pastor growing up. I adored the man. He mentored me. He loved me. He gave me opportunities to try preaching and to lead other students, and he was everything to me. By the way, I also dated his daughter for four years, but that's another story altogether. (laughs) He goes to Marietta and hires me for the summer to come down and be his intern. We're walking through the hallway one day. A woman comes up to him and says, brother so-and-so, I was asked to teach Sunday school But somebody in the class said I shouldn't teach because they said the Bible says that women shouldn't teach over men. And he said, well, if the Bible says it, we can't argue with the Bible. I bit the inside of my lip, waited for her to leave, and I said, Larry, listen, that's not not right. I said, if she had asked me the question, I wouldn't have said, yes you can teach but yes you can teach you can preach you can be a pastor you can do whatever God has called you to do and our struggle is to figure out what did those passages mean then he holds up a Bible and holds it in my face and says to me you proved to me in that book where it says God will call a woman to preach so I did (laughs) and it didn't go over well with him and I was right, and he was wrong. And my heart was in turmoil because of who he is. So that night, I got up the next morning and I said to him, Larry, and he even threatened to stop our summertime payment, which is what I was doing the whole thing in the beginning. I got to pay his school bill, right? He said, don't talk that way around here or you'll lose your stipend. And I said to him the next morning, I love you, but what I'm saying is the truth. Keep the money, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. I'll say that to you to say I know what Peter must have felt. To have come to a brand new place of freedom and understanding of what God's grace is doing, God's grace is seeping out everywhere, and then he turns and sees his old youth minister and says, well, maybe we should just kind of, let's temper, let's slow down. And Paul says, are you out of your mind? You can go back. And Paul is so angry because he's writing a letter to the Galatians and he sees that these Galatian Christians who were living full lives of Christ were being turned and some of them having to take on this yoke, this weight that they were never meant to bear. And he writes them a letter and in it, confronts both them and Peter with these words in Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, the Judaizers, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction, and the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Are you out of here? Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified. Now here's the money verse, ready? A person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by what you can do and how you can show off and what you can prove. No one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Well, Certainly not. And here it is. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. In other words, through Christ I broke down every dividing wall through him. And if I build back up the dividing walls between us that were once brought down, then I've become a transgressor myself. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but it is Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification comes through the law then Christ died for nothing. Paul is saying Christ did not come and live and suffer and die a criminal's death on a cross and, and rise on the third day so that we put back on ourselves a yoke of slavery. He came to set us free from those things and for Paul, all of it was grace. It's all grace. It's grace that set the table and it's faith that shows you to your seat. You didn't set this table. You didn't bring a covered dish to it. It's the Lord's table and it was grace that set the table and it's your faith that helps you find your seat and there could be no more critical message today than what I'm speaking to you. Because this isn't just an ancient lesson about a first century group of folks and primitive rituals like circumcision and dietary laws. It's not about that. It's about us. Because while we may not require, I know the hour's upon us. I need, can I have about five more minutes? Can you give me five? If you give me five and I give five, that's 10, we'll be fine. (laughs) Listen, we may not require new believers to be circumcised or take on a dietary code of ethics or to live by a certain calendar but we do put yokes of bondage upon them because in our culture our faith in Christ is so fused with our cultural murings that sometimes we don't know what came from Christ and what came from our social sensibilities or our public proclivities and sometimes depending on what part of the country you live in If a new convert lives in one particular part of the country or another part of the country, we will tell our new converts, yeah, it's all about Jesus. But by the way, on all these issues that divide us as a nation... You have to think this way about all the big issues. Think this way about race, and this way about sexuality, and this way about climate, and this way about money, and this way about the military, and this way, and and I'm talking about both conservative and liberal worldviews that get fused into a Christ worldview. And if we're not careful, we yoke new Christians with burdens upon their shoulders that Christ never gave them to bear. And the stakes are high about this because if you're walking around this world long enough, you'll see that the world is filled with lonely people in abject despair because we have demonstrated to them there's no place for them at this table. We've proven it to them by not what we say, but what we imply, Obliquely, we assume to be Christian means also this other checklist of things that are really more cultural than Christian. And if we don't wake up, the world will continue to grow in loneliness, brokenness, despair. And there will be people who think that there is no room at any table for them. And you and I, as people who live proleptically, as banquet people, party people, table people, we must live now in such a way that demonstrates to them there's a table they never knew they were welcome to come to. Do you know what that looks like? I'm gonna tell you what that looks like. In 2002, a movie came out, a great film called Antoine Fisher. It was directed by Denzel Washington. It's like you had me at Denzel, you know? but in this one, he was a supporting actor. It told the true story of a young African-American man who was abandoned at birth, shuttled from one foster care facility and family to the other, endured unspeakable abuses in every conceivable expression, and found a solace in the U.S. Navy. Even there in a life that is supposed to help you order your life. He was walking around like a powder keg, about to explode. And so his psychologist, Denzel Washington, said you might need to go on a journey and find your family of origin whom he had never met. After much pushback, he finally went on that journey. He found himself on a plane to Chicago. He got to Chicago, stayed in a cheap motel room, got the Yellow Pages. If you're under a certain age, we'll explain what yellow pages are at another time. And he's flipping through the yellow pages and he gets down to the white pages and he follows down the Fs to Fisher and he calls dead end, dead end, dead end, dead end until the woman who answered was his aunt. And his aunt said, oh yeah, you got some people up here. And so they met up and... He asked about his father and about his mother. His father had died not too long ago, but his mother lived about two miles down the road. He had never met her. He musters the courage to go speak to her in her tiny, humble, little apartment. And he scoots up next to her and he says to her, I need you to know some things about me. I've never been in trouble with the law. I haven't fathered any children. I've read hundreds of books, written poetry. I serve my country. Didn't you wonder about me? Didn't you miss me? And what he was doing in that scene was demonstrating what I heard and rattling around in, in my head as, was there no table big enough for me? What he didn't know while he's talking to his mother is that his aunt and his uncle had called every other relative in Chicago while he was away and told them to bring something to eat. And when he showed back up at his aunt's house, he experienced a welcome that I liken unto the welcome into heaven and I just want you to see for a moment what it looks like for someone who was told his whole life there's no room for you at this table to actually be overwhelmed by the surprise of grace. Take a look. Hey, what are you doing? I'm your uncle Horror. Get out of the way, Horace. Come on, baby. Look at you, look at I you your, I'm, your, I'm your Aunt Anna, baby. Wait, <laughs> me, oh, me. I'm your cousin Jeanette. I come on, home home your Aunt Anna. What are you, doing, baby. Oh, my God, Jesus. Oh, my. This is my wife's tea. How you doing good looking. I'm your cousin Eddie. My dad named me after your father. This <laughs> my brother Ray. What's up, dog? What's cracking? <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all, I'm your cousin Jason, man. What's love? All right, boys. Open up. Mm -hmm. all right (laughs) sometimes when I think of God and sometimes when I think of my entrance into heaven I can think of no more beautiful expression than an African American matriarch with arthritic hands on the face of a great great grandson who thought he had no table on this earth saying welcome this the kingdom of God.